Bad Ape. Bad Ape. Yeah. Bad Ape. He's that's a pretty good impression. Thank you. The <laughs> alien holding up the dresses, that was like Jar Jar Binks level. The worst part <laughs> is that you were sitting next to me and you were obviously hating it. <laughs> And for good reason. But the worst part was that I was with you until like the third time, and then I started giggling. <laughs> like, that was the, oh man, that was the closest I've ever understood liking Family Guy. There was some gnarly line readings where it was the first time in a film in a long while where I thought somebody was reading cue cards. <laughs> so I'm sorry, buddy, but... um think you need to find another profession yeah welcome into film tank the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we do two films as we talk about Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets and War for the Planet of the Apes. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hey there again, everybody, and welcome into episode 120 of Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman, and uh, along with me today is just, just one person. One other, one other person, that is. He's a very special little guy, and his name is not Toussaint Egan. Oh, oh it's Nick Cheney. It. I didn't know which way you were going to go with that. Yeah. <laughs> There's there probably a lot of better options, but you know that works fine. I you know I think before we dive into the episode, um, I really you know we need to go over some house cleaning here <laughs> and just make some very important uh, film take announcements. Uh, Toussaint Egan uh, will not be on the podcast for the foreseeable episode. Ah, ah see ah, what I was gonna do there? Oh, yeah, that was good. Toussaint's listening to this. If he's listening to this, nope. is going motherfucker. And, uh, yeah. I wouldn't be too worried about that. So, uh, so today, uh, we were planning to just talk about War for the Planet of the Apes. But then we saw a masterpiece. Well, that's an opinion. Uh,. But we found out Toussaint wasn't going to be able to make it. <laughs> so we were like, let's just talk about even more stuff. Yeah, pretty yeah, much. Makes sense. Um, you know, we had we usually hang out together beforehand and, and afterwards for a while when the three of us get together. So uh, tonight was the first screenings for Valerian and what I am guessing is a much better film which is dunkirk oh uh which they both why don't out you hold off until you've seen both films <laughs> alex okay anyways both of them were released on the same day uh which is july the 20th and we will be talking about dunkirk on our next episode uh next week so uh as always look forward to that but today uh we're going to talk about both of uh these and the film will start with, uh, which we just walked out of like 20 minutes ago, not after the end. Uh, we didn't We didn't just leave. Uh, and that is Valerian, 
and the City of a Thousand Planets. Uh, this is the newest release from Luc Besson, who's done a whole gamut of films, including The Fifth Element, Leon the Professional, and uh, most recently he released Lucy, Lucy a few years ago, which uh, a certain member of this podcast thought was a fantastic film. Tucson. <laughs> He hates that movie. He does. Uh, I don't. It with I don't know if he really hates it though. I think he's got a like a Prometheus thing going on where he yeah. actually kind of likes it. I don't think he wants to admit just how much he likes it, mm-hmm. and that's fun to say on a podcast episode that he's not here for. That's okay. He probably wouldn't be paying attention if he was actually here that's either. True. So he actually is here, uh, right next to me. He's just a little distracted, aren't you, buddy? Oh dear. <laughs> So, uh, this film, uh, as mentioned, was directed by Luc Besson and clearly had a pretty high graphic reach uh, as they really tried to hammer home in the trailers uh, and all of the uh, the online marketing that's been going on for the last week or so has been pretty prevalent. Uh, the film stars Dane DeHaan, who... Uh, America's heartthrob. Yeah, makes an interesting starring appearance, uh, although he did star in uh, the film by Gore Verbinski last year called A Cure for Wellness, which most people uh, that saw it didn't think it was anything great, which Gore Verbinski hasn't really done anything that great in a while. Uh, And also, he played that one uh, villain from the Spider-Man 2 movie with Andrew Garfield. Yeah. And other things that were actually good. Yeah, Chronicle, Season 3 of In Treatment. Mm-hmm. That's about it. Yep. <laughs> uh, also here, uh, joining him is Cara Delevingne, who most people know as the model and also as that girl from Suicide Squad who played the Enchantress. Do who... people know her from that? From what? <laughs> from Suicide Squad, I feel like... Oh, people, people know her from that. Do they? Sure. I, I could just like... For a ba- in a bad way. True. Yeah. I just meant I could just see myself not knowing who she was going to see that and just thinking that that was just a CGI person and that there wasn't actually anyone there. Well, she played that other character who becomes the Enchantress, oh, who's like an actual right. person. Yeah, that's right. Who also has large eyebrows. We gotta rip her heart out. Yeah. <laughs> there were some other people who show up here in minor roles, including Clive Owen, Ethan yeah. Hawke, Rihanna... Uh, and Herbie Hancock also here, <laughs> so that's interesting. Herbie Hancock. And uh, also... It's John Hancock. <laughs> uh, Rutger Hauer... Uh, that's right. ...has that bizarre appearance in the beginning of the film, even though he gets the, the whiff in the opening credits. He then is in the film for about 14 seconds, yeah. so that's interesting. This uh, film centers around a dark force that is threatening... Alpha, which is a vast metropolis and home to species from a thousand planets. Special operatives Valerian and Loreline must race to identify the menacing thing that is attempting to safeguard... What? Not just Alpha, but the future of the universe. That's so... I hate IMDb so many... But it's just too much fun, usually. So... I'm not going to have too much to say about this, so why don't we start with Nick? Thank you so much. Okay. Um, Shakespeare once said... Uh... <laughs> it's good, because there's a it's Shakespeare. Funny. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately. Oh, boy. Um... 
What do you say about a movie that is utterly perfect? Uh, okay, I'm done. I enjoyed this. It's stupid. It's whatever. But if I'm going to watch a ridiculous space opera, whatever, swashbuckling adventure, mm-hmm. I want one of this imagination like you know for better or for worse uh there are things in this movie that i haven't seen in other movies of a silk uh some of the set pieces i actually thought whether i'm not saying they got to the fullest potential of each but i was definitely delighted by some of the stuff on display here um one of the big the the opening mission that they have to do on the one tourist planet where they have to kind of like switch in between not even switch in between but like be a placeholder in one reality um where the other reality is actually basically projected on top but they're both living reality like i thought that was fascinating yeah um and how they had to maneuver in and you could between. actually purchase physical things yeah. and, and although they didn't really explain that but they didn't really have to well so. that was one of the times when i thought the film had an actual not something to say but actually a kind of an astute observation of what the future might look like not in like the actual like oh we're gonna be able to do that but like i think people would eat that shit up um that kind of thing um yeah i <laughs> i enjoyed rihanna's strip tease because that was extremely out of nowhere and um yeah just the fact that i actually said that sentence about a space opera like that's just the kind of movie this is and i don't with her pimp played by yeah ethan, ethan hawk who is who, great who looked um his outfit looked eerily like the uh, the guy who's trying to give away Scarlett Johansson. Yes, I was going to say that. At the beginning of Lucy. That's so weird. <laughs> Who was just in something I watched. Yeah. Now I'm forgetting. I, I, he was in something rather notable because we yeah. both saw it. I and think. we were like, that's the guy from... Oh, yeah. he's in Ghost in the Shell. Okay. Um, yeah, anyway. That's, but... that's what I'm thinking of. Okay. Um, anyway. Um, but yeah, like, um, I had fun with this. It's... You can say, and I won't disagree, that it's poorly acted at parts, and certainly uh, a line can be cringe-inducing at other parts, but this movie is just so pretty to look eh, at, you know? That's fine. The movie, I would say, is the equivalent of like someone you're dating that you're fascinated by, but you don't really want to show off to your friend because you're embarrassed by him, too. <laughs> Just saying, like, you know, there, there's love there, but um, it's it's not going to last, and it won't really hold up to uh, any other <laughs> uh, interactions. But uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I have to say, uh, one of my favorite parts of this film, absolutely, uh, was when <laughs> uh, they go into hyperdrive or whatever you want to call it leaving that planet with the huge alien monster hanging on and then it just yeah. falls off and falls back towards the plane <laughs> I know, just, it? and it just kept like yeah going and then it doesn't actually show you like it landing yeah. too. it's just just the scene of it just going <laughs> yeah no i'm with you there that was delightful. no that was enjoyable and i mean it's not like i wanted a lot more of that that was a fun little moment uh in the film um, do you mind if I just mm. go in? Yeah. I didn't hate this per se. Like I've seen other films this year that I would 
would I would watch Valerian again before I watch the Discovery again. Okay. Um, that being said, uh, Luc Besson usually his films I can take or leave for the most part. The only film that he's done that I can say that I really really enjoyed was Leon the Professional, and that's a complete that's a one. Yeah, and that's a completely different film than what this or the fifth element is yeah. going for. Uh, yeah, bad acting is, uh, clearly I felt like was embraced here. Um, I, I don't think that this movie has no shame. No. And I, I don't think that they chose Dane DeHaan and, um, I've already Cara Delevingne, Cara Delevingne by accident. Like they were going for a certain, uh, look and a certain sound and a certain delivery, and well, I'm pretty sure they got what they wanted. I think that's half that. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the other half is that to get any money else, they would have probably had to forfeit in some of their budget because it's a huge budget. And clearly, yeah. and I don't know if you agree with this because I think sometimes you and I have disagreements when it comes to like CGI and whatever. But I thought that throughout the film was pretty good. No, I think uh, uh, I think this. I think this looked really good, and I think... Um, so that took a lot of money. Well, usually does. Um, the, the other thing is that there weren't many... Um, there weren't many moments where it felt like, oh, they just filled this scene in. Like, as you see... Uh, I, I guess I don't have a really great example. Oh, Wonder Woman would be a good example, where there were some parts of it that felt like all the money went to those big battle scenes, and yeah. this scene looks like shit. Or like, not even just that, like like that, and also there'd be a scene in something like Wonder Woman, or even sometimes the Marvel movies mm-hmm. are guilty of it, where it's like, wait, why is a backdrop of just trees CGI? Like, yeah. you know, like where they're just, I guess, saving money, and then like little things like that. Whereas... Um, the only time where I saw, even though it was also kind of the film that is most beautiful, but the only time when I saw like true, like kind of not glitches, but just the Uncanny Valley was the, you know, the planet of Mule or whatever mm-hmm. that looked like a complete, which it was, CGI scale. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looked gorgeous, whatever. Yeah. But like, I, I thought a lot of the mixing and the melding of the humans um, inside the actual Alpha station, like, even though it certainly all looks like CGI, like, I, I couldn't, I. I was trying to discern, like, what might actually be real in this, like, whether it be a platform or whatever. And the fact that yeah. that all blended together well, I thought was good. Well, and the the one thing, and you already kind of mentioned it about the futuristic part of this film, that's the one thing this has going for it is maybe the future just looks like this. Yeah. So, you know, that part I, I didn't mind at all. Uh, it was just that this film never reached... Uh, point that it was at during its first 20 minutes when I felt like the opening introduction to this film was fantastic where we have pretty much showing two countries coming together then multiple countries coming together and then multiple different aliens joining in then that's just how this whole space station came to be it looked like the uh the one montage in the martian just stretched out to a prologue where (laughs) where, you know the chinese and the americans work together and Mm -hmm. i was just waiting for a canned heat let's get together to start playing yeah let's get the girl out Oh, that was great. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. But instead, we got David Bowie. Yeah, which is fine. It is, no, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Yeah, a little overused, was, but yeah, it was probably chosen on purpose because yeah. of... Yeah. 
end that part of the film, uh, the early introduction we get to the two main characters of Valerian and Lorelai was actually, I thought, pretty good on on the beach. Uh, and not really a beach. Was it the beach? I, yeah, I know. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, the, the opening scene on the planet uh, that the, the creatures come from. Uh, and I think the reason why the, the film for me never really reaches that moment is we get the idea of time travel brought pretty early on in this film where this kind of action happens between the characters 30 years ago and yet we have communication with a character from the current time. And I thought that was fascinating and could have been awesome if it was used a little bit more here. Yeah, I mean... Like, not, not overused, but no, just no. brought to the table and it felt like that was used for its plot purpose and then dropped. Yeah. So. Um, it, yeah, no, I'm with you there in the sense that it's kind of pointless in its form that it's here because they say it so early on so you're like oh okay like that's that's what happened mm-hmm. but then it's not until the last like 20 minutes that they're even able to reconcile whatever the message is and there's no there's and no, no like, real oh. there's no real payoff for yeah. it it's just Maybe. so someone other than them has the knowledge of what's going on. Yep. So yeah, no, that was weird. Yeah, um, I just yeah, I I didn't uh, I felt like this film from a story level had a lot higher potential than it ended up reaching because I felt like after the first probably thirty to forty minutes, it really just turned into a we have this good looking film that has to have some sort of a story. For me, I would say the film is divided into two sections when it comes to my enjoyment. And I pretty much was never bored by this movie because I was just kind of tickled by all the designs and such. Because even at its like lowest point or being the most boring part of the movie, there was always something to look at in the background, which sounds like it doesn't mean anything. But it kind of does. Like, this is different than just like dropping a background um, just to have something behind our character that I genuinely think that more thought was put into um, the visuals and the backdrops and the planets they inhabit, even if we don't see a huge variety, um, than the script writing and the, the acting and whatnot. Um, I think most of this movie was made in post, so to speak. Um, and that's what this kind of movie is, which means it's not very rewarding, but it's kind of fun to look at. Um one thing I will say, as I was saying, that I think it's kind of divided into two parts of my enjoyment. Basically, the entire stretch of the film where Dane, Dehan, and Kara Delavine are in their, like, touristy clothes, like, from the very beginning of the movie. Like, once they suit up, so to speak, to be soldiers, that's when the movie, I think, itself also takes a turn for the mundane and mm-hmm. becomes a more straightforward uh, military sci-fi epic, whatever. But the first, like, 45 minutes, uh, I just thought, like, I had no idea where the hell this movie was going. And, you know, the Taurus planet and a few other... The, yeah, the... you get the uh, the suggestion that they should put on more clothes, yeah. and they sort of do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and for some reason, Cara Delevingne's uh, suit has literal breastplates. Yeah. Um, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. It just feels like that's more of a target, but... <laughs> It was, yeah. She's missing some bat nipples. <laughs> I've, the Alicia Silverstone Batgirl suit has to come to mind. You see yeah. that for sure. Um, another thing that I noticed here is the City of a Thousand Planets. And we see like three of them. So that was cool. 
Well, I'm sure there's going to be more movies. Please don't do that. <laughs> there's always more. You know, we have the we have the in, intrigue early on of showing all of these different groups, and it, and it's. It felt like here's this montage, and that's what that was. Yeah, and, and we saw most of that in the trailer too. So yeah. I felt like it was a little, a little misleading. City of a Thousand Planets is definitely more metaphorical <laughs> than it is literal, <laughs> and I'm sticking with that. Okay. Well. No, I'm, I'm with you in the sense that uh, the scope of this movie, while from scene to scene, I found enthralling. Um, does not live up to that title card uh, and, and grandiose sense of adventure. Um, another shout out to something I enjoyed, but I enjoyed his, uh, what's his name? Oh, Valerian. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's sad. Uh, I enjoyed Valerian's um, little detour on the planet uh, with... Uh, Ethan Hawke's character, <laughs> like even before that bar or whatever, like I just that whole. I guess I won't say Blade Runner us because Blade Runner is not the only sci-fi movie that's done the whole neon uh, Tokyo vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this I just thought was um, actually kind of cool. Like I would have watched like even more of him just going down other alleys to see what random shit is there. Uh, Although it kind of seemed like the only purpose of that planet or whatever was uh, prostitution. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's why you call it Paradise Alley. Uh, wow. <laughs> um, oh, can we talk about... Yes. <laughs> um, can we talk about Cara Delevingne in a big hat? <laughs> um, yeah, The uh, I gotta say, I think the hardest I definitely laughed in the film was... Uh, when the alien leader squashed the the was the it a lemon? Was it a lemon yeah, all over lemon. her head on top of the hat, which just looked I actually hilarious? Thought that was funny. <laughs> that was one of those times where I'm like, okay, Luke, you you made me laugh. Yeah, just because uh, I did not see that coming. <laughs> no, um, but yeah. Uh, other than that, that whole scene. You oh, the like uh, the alien. Oh, the holding a- up the. Dresses? The alien holding up the dresses, that was like Jar Jar Binks Kay. level. The worst part <laughs> is that you were sitting next to me and you were obviously hating it. And, <laughs> and for good reason. But the worst part was that I was with you until like the third time and then I started giggling. <laughs> like that was the, oh man, that was the closest I've ever understood to, uh, I've ever understood liking Family Guy because by the... F- <laughs> By the fourth time the alien does it, I'm like, oh, it just keeps going. That's funny. <laughs> so I, I was ashamed. Yeah. <laughs> I feel so dirty. <laughs> yeah, that... With the cute little eye. Yeah. At least he doesn't talk. Like, that was Jar Jar's problem. <laughs> well, and they just kept kept on rolling them out Speaking there for the rest of the film. Jar Jar, but... Um, I think the most Star Wars-esque this movie felt when it came to, like, its ancillary characters were those mm. three little yeah. ducks. Um, Cara Delevingne's character definitely says, I have a bad feeling about this at one she point, does. which which I felt like was a little a little much. But... Yeah, specifically the three ducks reminded me of the dude from The Phantom Menace. Um, oh, um, who, Watto? Yeah, is he the one who runs the pod race? Yes. Yeah, that guy. Like, it just, they look like, I mean, I know he, they're he not flying, flying, but buttons. I'm just saying they kind of had that, like, little selfish bastard type. 
I mean, the the Star Wars creatures were definitely something that I first thought of when we saw the trailer the first time. And I was like, oh, man, this is what they're going for. They're going for all these creatures from the outer galaxy. Yeah. And um, I guess I didn't think about it too much during the film, which is a good thing. Yeah. I, I um, thought about it once or twice. Yeah. Uh, so I think for for that part of it, it was done well enough to not make it seem like they were just trying to go for what Star Wars goes for in that part of their film's there, history. The, one thing that separates these two movies, mm-hmm. uh, as far as like their approaches, I think, to science fiction in general, is that this movie, and I'm not saying this as a slight against Star Wars, but this movie has no limit to what technology is capable of in this movie. Like, mm-hmm. Star Wars is very grounded in the sense that unless machines can kind of do it, like, there's not a lot of magic outside of the Force itself. Um, and, like, I would say species themselves don't create their own rules of matter and such. So, like, the um, the scene in which the... I forget. Is it the... the, the, the mole people? who, like, come in and assault with the gun. Yeah. Shoot out. Yeah. Yeah. When, like, that whole scene where they shoot out the goo, which is supposed to, like, drown them, them and whatnot. Like, little things yeah. like that where that's clearly not man-made. It's that-made. And um, that was something that was felt more, and not in a bad way, but, like, from a fantasy novel than, like, a hard sci-fi, so to speak. Yeah. But every time they do something like that, then I'm always kind of, in this movie at least, uh, delighted by like all oh, the little workaround like the, the little thing he puts in his mouth which a helps him breathe and b cuts away the goo or the um the scene in which um they're jumping off cliffs only to hold on to other aliens fishing bait yeah you know little things like that, that was where, cool where like this is the movie where i wanted to see more deus ex machinas where like these little things that i just would never think of are somehow all around this world um, and there are like quite a few of them. I mean, the um, the way he makes his gun invisible when he walks into the bar, you know, little things like that. That I, because there was like a lot of these kind of things, um, I was just always at least hot. Or even seat. the um, when Rihanna's character Boba, I believe, bubbles, bubble, bubble, just one bubble. Oh, okay, yeah. when she dies and legitimately just turns to sand. Yeah. I just thought that looked cool. Yeah. And there's no reason for that. Nope. Whatsoever. <laughs> nope. Um, but, you know, I'm glad they did it. Yeah. No, and that's pretty much to your point and you know, separating this from something like Star Wars where this is just, it is what it is and there's no legion of nerds on the internet that's going to say, that couldn't happen because well, who probably get, is. Well, that's fine, but there's really no precedent here. It's just whatever Luke yep. Bassan's thought process was. So. Yeah, I mean, think of the uh, the the idea of in the tourist planet where they all have to use the glasses and the gloves to interact with this basically virtually projected reality, but they can bring things in and out of the reality if they are um, if they travel or if they I guess push the object themselves through a box. Yeah. Whatever. The rules are extremely flimsy. <laughs> I don't care. Um, but, like, oh, that's fine. But then, like, the fact that um, Valerian's character, and this is actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie, but the fact that he can, like, fall through levels of this place, even though he's not in that place, you know, like, 
Um, that was when my brain was just like turned off because like it like lit- it was like it literally defeated me because it was like does does not compute whatsoever. So I guess I can't try. Um, but that also led to a scene that I enjoyed, which was the little baby, or not baby, but the little child alien mm-hmm. uh, who's got his little gun. That was adorable. Or like the, the little metal balls that weigh yeah. people down. I, I don't know. It's like, where do you get this shit? Um, so, yeah. There's no answer. No. If you like little metal balls, uh, <laughs> you like this movie. Valerian is for you. That's hey. Right. Um, so the last, uh, moment or not moment, but the last part of this film that I'll mention that I really enjoyed was, it was a sequence that Nick, when we were, uh, heading back from the theater, you said you thought was really good as yeah. well. But when Valerian is running through and going through walls and swimming and falling and all that shit, uh, and we just see this crazy, scene that has all these bizarre editing transitions in it and it just he just goes through like a dozen different ecosystems yeah and it's pretty and cool. it, it just worked really well and it obviously took probably a very large effort to put that 40 second scene together and yeah. um you know what that's that's why people should make movies is you get a huge payoff on you know a year's worth of work on 40 seconds of a film and it you know what it shows because that part of the film is something that's going to be very memorable where a lot of other parts of it won't be so you know what's sad i feel like i'll like that 40 seconds more than i'll like anything in any of the avatar sequels <laughs> you're probably right <laughs> i'm just saying when you're taking that long and clearly this is actually probably the closest thing i've seen to avatar since avatar when it comes to um, ridiculously ambitious sci-fi CGI epics, so to speak. Um, but Luke Besson is just a more humane person. <laughs> so, well, yeah, James. Um, James Cameron certainly has a different... A different... Uh, I like some of James Cameron's stuff. He's but... done a lot of very, very good films. Mm. He's got a. He's got a different... Beacon on his radar, but I think James Luke Besson does. Yeah, but I think James Cameron is basically done. Um, I don't know. I can't. If if he's this invested in Avatar sequels, then at the very least, I'm done with with James Cameron. Because yeah, I, if if this is you know like it, it like Martin Scorsese. Okay, I'm now I'm com- comparing one director I love and one that I just think is fine and sometimes good or whatever, mm-hmm. but. For better or for worse, Martin Scorsese is still trying to, like, top himself. And not in some overly, oh, I'm going to take ten years to make sequels nobody wants way. <laughs> uh, but just in that, like, he's not going to try to settle for something that's going to make him money or whatever. Um, whereas James Cameron seemed to be like, oh, that, it, for me at least, it seemed like, oh, that was the highest grossing movie since my highest grossing movie? Well, what if I make four of them? I got. The, I have to say, theme uh, parks. I've been to it. It's, yeah, it's not good. Did you have tail sex with one of the aliens? Uh, it did not. Oh, um, man. What's yeah, the point? That thing. Uh, that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> uh, the Avatar Land at Disney's Animal Kingdom is. Uh, boy, it's hard to not be a disappointment. <laughs> um, I didn't even know that was open. 
Yes. I thought it was like Memorial Day this year. Development or something. was in development for like so five years. really quickly. I know we're getting mm-hmm. off topic, but I'm curious. Mm-hmm. So this is an Avatar theme like park. Well, it's a section of a park, right? Like a yeah. section, yeah. whatever. But mm-hmm. when you walk into it, is it modeled after Pandora? Yes. Or is it okay? So you are. So the problem apparently is is that it's modeled after Pandora in a later film. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. Stop right there. Yep. That's exactly what I thought. Wow. Okay. So, yep. It's, this um, is Pandora after they scaled it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Um, there's right. one part of it which is called the Floating Mountain. Oh. Uh, it looks really cool, yeah. and it's really, it's it, it, you know, it's it's just right there in your face it's yep. you know just like a lot of things that are centerpieces at disney parks like the castle or the yep. uh the geosphere at epcot or whatever like it's it catches your eye as soon as you walk in yep. so it's it's like a monument in yeah. itself so it's awesome to see yep. uh and pretty much everything else in the area was not great so oh, <laughs> that's and that's the and the the most damning thing about it is that Pretty unanimously, everyone uh, has said in their thoughts of it that it looks better in the day than it does at nighttime. Ooh, which that is not good nope. because the whole point of that goddamn place should be that it should be at nighttime should be when you want to be there. Yeah, it should be lit. Yeah, and it is. It just looks bad. Well, it looks like it. It looks like somebody. Uh, I wish I was joking, but it looks like somebody. Were you there at night? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. We were there during the day for a while, and then at night for a little bit. It looks like, and this is really, <laughs> uh, it's really damning, but that's it, just what I thought it looked like. Yeah. You know that like chalk that people can write with that mm. is like can be blacklit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what, what like. that's what some of it looked like. Wow. Interesting. Bad. That's bad. Uh, Not good. No. So you can do that in a warehouse. You know, mm-hmm. at a rave. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and and the, I think the, the the whole thing with that land pretty much fits with what you were just talking about, is that nobody wanted this. No. And it's like the one ride is okay. It's not great. It's fine. The other ride is a waste of time. <laughs> and who cares? People are going to see it now because it's new. And it's Disney. Yeah. But in... Now, if you're Disney... Two years? How long does it take for you to cut your losses on a theme park? Because you can't cancel it right away, because like, then you're just... The problem with Disney yeah. is that they were banking on these Avatar sequels coming out. Coming out. <laughs> I think a lot of people it. were. Yes. And you just kind of had to open it, and <laughs> people... I mean, again, people are going, so right. it's fine for now... But again, is this going to be a big money maker? And what about when their Star Wars area opens and yeah, all the guests matter. are going there? Like who, who's going to give a shit? Maybe when they're <laughs> at the Star Wars hotel, maybe one of the missions will be to, to go, go to, to Pandora <laughs> and retrieve the lost jellyfish. <laughs> and while you're there, buy a snow cone. <laughs> <laughs> the tail. <laughs> Sell them. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, Anyways, I'll tell you, I'll really, tell you what I would. Re- really quickly, oh, though, yeah. I was going to mention yeah. about uh, the Avatar sequels okay. is that 
although I think they're not going to be good, um, James Cameron has pretty much always brought something to the table. So I'm going to yeah, at least see it. try to hold off judgment until I... Now, if the first one is shit and there's wow. three more coming, yeah, that's... big trouble. But, yep. I mean, if it's at least somewhat intriguing, brings something kind of new to the table... I'm going to hold off judgment a little bit. But at the same time, everyone's thoughts have pretty much been, why is this happening? And then he keeps striking it out. And every year he seems to have an announcement. Well, another year. <laughs> I mean, you hear of people like Alfonso Cuaron and a few others waiting to make their movies, uh, waiting for certain technology to come out. like Which is what James Cameron did with the original Avatar. Which is true. Mm-hmm. But... You know, at a certain point, what are you just waiting for Godot, I guess, because I, I don't... I, the, I gotta tell you, the... If, the, if you the, have to wait that long, maybe your movie's not good enough to begin with. I was just gonna say, I mean, the thought has to cross your mind to say, really, he's got nothing. <laughs> yeah. He's waiting because he keeps rewriting the scripts because really these movies are going to be crap. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. So Valerian, why yeah. don't we get to our final uh, final thoughts and ratings here. And uh, if you want to go first, yeah. you can. So I would give this a three out of five. Okay. I know like, it sounds like I'm really going bad for it. And I kind of am in the sense that I want to see more movies like this. I, I want to see blockbusters. Uh, at least uh, just go batshit crazy with their imagination and run wild. And yeah, there's some par acting and writing in this movie, but I don't know. For me, and I'm not usually into this sort of thing, um, I had fun with it. And I would say if you're on the fence, go see it in the theaters because it's probably the most you'll enjoy the movie uh, no matter who you are, sure. so go try it now. It um, is a little lengthy. It's like two twenty. It is. It certainly is. Um, I went to the bathroom once, which I don't really ever do. But I only did it because I remembered it was like, oh, this is a two and a half hours. So, yeah. <laughs> and Rihanna hasn't showed up yet, so I think I'm good to go at this point. So yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I enjoyed this. This is the exact kind of silly, stupid fun that wasn't so stupid that I couldn't find anything to grab onto. Like I said earlier, there's a lot of set pieces that I actually did enjoy, whether it be the weird tourist virtual reality or the um, ever-changing visuals in the background when he's making his escape. And no matter how hackneyed it is, even the final uh, climax was actually kind of potent in today's world with the whole... uh, jingoistic, well, I did this because it's better for our country, I don't care about others, they're the threat, you know, whatever, it's, I'm not saying it's subtle at all, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's 2017, so <laughs> it landed, so yep. um, I enjoyed it, three out of five, and I would personally watch it again. Yeah, yeah um, even though I'd probably say I enjoyed this more than films that I've given a higher rating to, which is something that I sometimes do which may not make any sense but whatever um i'm still gonna give this just a two out of five because i i didn't really think this was anything that great um you know luke basan obviously has a very very 
interesting and uh, watchable talent that I feel like can make multiple different films. Uh, the issue is for me is that I feel like he's kind of a little bit like Ridley Scott, where he could get obsessed with the wrong type of thing. And then here you are with a film that isn't that great. So I thought there were definitely parts of this that were enjoyable, but I don't think anyone could watch this and think it's great or a masterpiece. And if they did, um, good for them, I guess, but I, I, I I don't see it. So I'm going to stick with my two out of five, although I'll probably think of this higher than something like ghost in the shell, even though I, I, you know, didn't hate that film. This is just better than that. So I think you mentioned something earlier before the episode that I'll I'll reiterate and say, I think you're right in the sense that like this compared to something like ghost in the shell, um, doesn't take itself as seriously, and that whether you think it's a good movie or a bad movie makes it m- much more watchable at times. I think this film, yes, oh yeah, um, I can see as, that. As far as that tone helps it uh, tremendously from start to finish. Yeah, and it it's it's uh, it's never truly boring, which I think you kind of mentioned a couple times. But at the same time, it never delivers any... Even a film that I didn't really love either, which was the second Guardians of the Galaxy, has a lot better uh, moments delivered throughout than this does, where this just keeps going from scene to scene. Even if it looks really good and has cool parts, not really a lot to offer. So, two out of five for me for Valerian. So, moving on to a film that I think I can safely say we both liked more quite a bit than and this it film. it takes place in the same universe. <laughs> well, they're all connected, so yeah. it's pretty much all we the same We just didn't see this, this planet. <laughs> you might have that, and it's actually possible. Uh, the film is War for the Planet of the Apes, which is the uh, final film, possibly. Well, At least in the trilogy. Final, yeah. Yeah, there may be more. It's a final film. I'm just saying, yeah. compared to most blockbusters that say they're a final film, I think we can all agree when you watch this movie, you saw an ending to a story. No, oh, and uh, you know, the, I guess what I meant is that the Planet of the Apes... Yeah. There will be probably... Franchise will likely have another film down the road. But in this, uh, in what you could call Matt Reeves franchise or the Caesar franchise. I think Caesar is probably, probably the most better. appropriate since Reeves only did two out yeah. of three. Yeah, that's true. But anyways... They this... didn't even do your favorite. Oh, yeah. Rise <laughs> of Planet of the Apes. I still do think that was the best out of the three, but I James don't think anyone... Franco. Yeah, yeah John, John Lithgow. He's okay. Shut the fuck up. So anyways, this film uh, is the final film and centers around... The apes, as they have suffered unimaginable losses, and as Caesar wrestles with his darker instincts and begins his own mythical quest to avenge his kind, the apes begin a war. Sort of. Kind of. Anyways, this film, as mentioned, was directed by Matt Reeves, who also uh, directed the last film, and has uh, done a couple other things here and there, including Cloverfield, and apparently he's... Maybe going to be doing the upcoming Batman he is. film? I know he is, but... Oh, okay, yeah. Until it's in the can. 
he who seems knows? more committed to everybody else than everybody else who's been attached to it because yeah. um, he's at least giving interviews about his actual visions where most people are like, well, I still have to talk to Warner Brothers when they were confirmed. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Like, and one of the most recent uh, news article concerning the Batman's production is that Matt Reeves threw out Ben Affleck's script, which is one of the greatest things I've ever read. Because, like... I just, hope he physically threw it out. Yeah. So just... Lit it on fire. <laughs> um, while, uh, damn, it feels good to be a gangster playing in the background and office space style. Like, seriously, though, that made me a little too happy because following the production of, or I should say the pre-production of this new Batman movie has been just hilarious from <laughs> Bat, uh, from Bat, from Ben Affleck, uh, clearly like wanting this not to suck like Batman v Superman, um, going so far as to writing his own script and then even being rumored to direct. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was probably more Warner Brothers' decision to not have him direct than it was Ben Affleck's decision, like he said, to step away. I think they just let him have that publicly. Um, so the idea that Matt Reeves came in and was just like, oh, wow, you know. <laughs> um, which I got to say, I've liked Matt Reeves' scripts better than I've liked Ben Affleck's scripts. Oh. Although the interesting dynamic of that is Ben Affleck still has to be the star of this. Yeah, no, and that's what's so hilarious. So, like, if anything, this is, like, the most pure Batman we're ever going to have because he's just going to be brooding through the whole fucking thing. Like, he's just, in between takes, he's just going to be, like, smoking a cigarette being like, you know, I had a fucking great script for this movie, but they won't fucking let me do it. Like, all right, Ben, we need you. All right, I'm putting on my goddamn suit. He's going to start going rogue. He's just (laughs) going to start acting, doing whatever he wants, saying lines. Yeah. Oh, so anyways, Matt Reeves did direct this film, and uh, Caesar, the main character, played wonderfully, yet again, by Andy Serkis, uh, doing the motion capture, as pretty much he's become known for. Uh, and other people join in here as well, including the, the main people are uh, Amaya Miller, who plays the girl uh, Nova, who they uh, they kind of run into and their journey to this war site. Uh, that being the Legion of Apes. Well, really, it's just four at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, in addition, we have Woody Harrelson here playing the very bad bad guy of the Colonel, and also Steve Zahn uh, yeah. making a very interesting appearance as oh. Bad Ape. Bad Ape. Yeah. Bad Ape. He's that's a pretty good impression. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's I, I, maybe it's not good that you can do that that well, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, and, you know, I've got thoughts on that character. So, what a cute uh, ski vest. Yeah, it's <laughs> fine. That, that was not the worst part of that. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I guess I'll start since you started with, uh, Valerian. I thought this was pretty much a really, really good film. Um, I wouldn't say that I thought that this was great because I felt like, there wasn't enough of um, a complete buy-in into this trilogy like you've had, Nick, for me. Uh, so seeing this very good, well-done send-off wasn't necessarily every single payoff thing that I wanted. Because this is really, I think, actually quite a bit more so than the last two films. Even Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, a much more simpler story. 
Uh, and it's just really nothing that we haven't seen before, uh, other than maybe the final kind of moments where you have a real sort of embrace of what this legion of apes have wanted pretty much for their entire existence as they've been running away this entire time and they can stop running now, at least for a while. Um, so in that vein, I felt like that made this film a little bit limited in how much I could enjoy it in terms of it being like a fantastic film. That being said though, this is just a really, really strong work here. Um, the CGI here is absolutely fantastic. Um, this film, uh, the previous two films have been nominated for best visual effects. Um, I like the, the, all the apes here, uh, for the most part through almost every scene too, which is something that we talked about earlier with Valerian, where you have scenes that aren't as good as the close up slow scenes. And I mean, I think there is a bit of that, but the only scene that stuck out and mm-hmm. it is literally the only scene <laughs> um, where I was just like, eh, it's a little whatever mm-hmm. is the, there's the one scene where I think it's Caesar returning back to the caves and there are like basically hundreds of apes as the camera goes through all of them as the apes are clearly staring at what where the perspective of the Caesar. camera yeah. is Caesar. And there was a little too many CGI beams in there where it started whatever. But anytime there was less than like a hundred apes on screen, I was blown away, especially when there would just be one in it. There like the detail. I mean, the close-ups on Caesar and Caesar's body and face were just, and um, for me, Maurice was the yeah. standout as far as like just design of, I thought that there were times when I might have been looking at a prosthetic suit. Yeah. Um, I, I think the difference for me in terms of why I always gravitate towards Caesar in terms of the way the look is, is how much he actually does look like Andy Circus. <laughs> I mean, like, he's doing, obviously, the motion capture and everything. But you see Gollum, and, you know, obviously it has parts of his appearance in it. Uh, but every time, like, if Andy Circus was an ape, this is what Andy Circus would look like. And it was spot on. Pretty freaking um, cute. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, there's just not much to say negatively about this film for the most part. This was a wonderful work that, from start to finish, really had really had almost anything you could want from a trilogy ending planet of the apes film in it. You have the awesome beginning battle scene, which just looked fantastic. Uh, the explosions in the forest followed by the split up between the whole ape colony and the four pretty much hate to say it, but it felt like the fellowship of the ring (laughs) heading off to go find the Colonel and, uh, you know, then we have the trials and tribulations of them and their journey up the mountain. And then they get uh, there. And then we have a whole a whole thing, which uh, is like a slave camp where they're building a wall and not being fed. It's, it's a even, concentration. Yeah, it, it's it, and it's it and you have uh, <laughs> the parallels are not subtle. No. And you have the very bizarre reasonings behind the colonel, who's, uh, we talked about um, someone who's caring only about 
his group of people and his race, boy, they don't but make that subtle here. killed his son just to do it. Yeah. It's fine. Good. Great. Um, yeah. So, visually, though, this is, for the most part, a masterpiece. And explosions, which they were not all CGI. There was some really strong physical explosions in this film. Uh, the sound design here was pretty much flawless from start to finish. And, yeah, for what this film was meant to be, which is a film uh, ending this iteration of the Planet of the Apes, um, this is done really well. I, Again, uh, not as much of a buy-in. I think part of it is because my favorite film in this series, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which really shows the reasoning for why Caesar has this uh, connection with humans and why he's able to try to work with them and understand them better than a lot of the other apes, specifically like Koba, who we are seeing prominently as the antagonist in the second film. And he actually makes a couple appearances here. He does, but I think even you'll agree with me that like, I was surprised and yet happy by the restraint that they didn't somehow bring him back. Yeah. I thought they were going to, like, against all odds. Um, especially when, like, you see him with the dreams. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, they're really short. But then, like, when the movie was over, I'm like, oh, they were actually simply just using that for uh, character development as far as showing how far he's come. And yeah. certainly we could have known that without those things, but so it was kind of nice. Yeah, I felt like the, the weakest point of this film uh, for me was not really including any of his uh, Caesar being specifically his previous connections uh, during the climax of the film. I felt like that was a time when it would have fit in perfectly and would have closing film of the trilogy would have brought it full circle that he could not live without his memory of humans yet he cannot live without his actual people and they will always be connected because they would not be without James Franco and those other humans. And really it's not even mentioned throughout this entire film, which is fine. Um, But for me, it just, it felt a little, it it didn't really make sense in my, in in the way. And maybe that's because I'm really new to the series because I just watched these three films for the first time in the last three weeks. So, but uh, um, that there's, it's a very small complaint actually in a film that's really well done. So yeah. I've got some thoughts about that before I even get okay. general mm-hmm. thoughts as someone who's seen the original Planet of the Apes and who I definitely want to keep watching. Cause I've never actually seen it in the uh, sequels, uh, but the, these franchises, both the old and the new one are like the, if not the most, one of the most cynical and bleakest mainstream franchise ever made. It is always about how human beings are not long for this world. Not because apes themselves are evil, but because human beings can't help themselves from basically destroying themselves. Um, so, you know, I, I can kind of see where you're coming from, but for me at least, my defense of, like, why... I think there is an absence of like James Franco and the original family that brought Caesar into this world is that the trilogy itself was always on a trajectory of like him shedding that identity Mm -hmm. because this whole trilogy and one of the niftiest tricks that it pulls is that 
you know, when Rise came out, um, there was no need for that movie. What's I'm saying before it came out, like mm-hmm. there was just like, oh wow, that is just a bad idea, especially after Tim Burton <laughs> tried it himself and whatever. And then you hear like reports about it, how it's not going to be a Planet of the Apes movie. It's actually like at least that time, it was more going to be like an origin story, whatever. Um, and that actually ended up being the best decision they made because between these three movies. It is actually telling a story where if you're familiar at all with the original movie, you know exactly how this will end. And that's what's kind of fascinating about this is that it's never about the suspense of who will win, but Mm -hmm. about um, the inertia within the apes characters of trying to hold on to their humanity and how long they can hold out. Um, And that's for me why I found the entire trilogy fascinating. But at the end of the day, by the time you get to that last scene, their allegiance is only to apes at that point. Well, it's not even necessarily about their I'm saying I know what you mean. As far as like unifying the trilogy itself, like I, I'm I'm saying I'm 50, 50 on that. The absence of it does not bother me whatsoever. Um, and yet they tied it into the second film, so it's kind of weirdly absent. Not... Yeah, so yeah. I'm I'm fifty fifty on that. Um, overall, I love this franchise, this these this trilogy of movies. Personally, I think each film got better than the last. Mm. I can definitely concede to the, and I like all three. Like I I can I can concede to the fact that I think Rise probably has the most tightly constructed story Mm -hmm. of the three. Like, from scene to scene, that is, I think, very well told from... um, Well, and as as you mentioned, it is the film that by far has the most humans involved in it. And that whole trajectory itself, it is very evident where Rise is about the humans, Dawn is about the the balance between them, and War is about the apes. And and it's very fascinating for me, at least, to see humans literally get sidelined in their own, uh, you know, world in in the franchise. And even, um, so let's talk about, or for me, at least, talk about my general opinions on War. I thought this was an outstanding conclusion to a franchise I didn't know I wanted a remake of. Um, I thought that even if for me personally the drama didn't reach the complexity of what I think it's the most fascinating, not the best, but just the most like daring blockbuster of the three, which is for me Dawn. Like, I just think that's one of the strangest and yet most compelling blockbuster movies that have come out. Um, in recent memory. Um, this is slightly just better made, though, and less of a mess than that movie, so I, I kind of prefer this one. So even if I would say the the conflict between the humans and the apes are not at its most conflicted, because it's pretty cut and dry, uh, <laughs> who's on the wrong side of history here, um, I still thought this was just an outstanding conclusion to uh, a franchise in which... Andy Serkis is playing a, I guess I won't say wordless ape, because obviously by the end he's talking, but the lines don't really matter as much as just the emotion um, and the history that his character has. I'm just so astounded that this actually worked. (laughs) I I think the the thing about Andy Serkis' Caesar character and... Um, you know, I won't say all time or anything like that because that's a long film history. So I'm going to hold that off a little bit. But in terms of uh, films in just the last decade or so, 
his character of Caesar is one of the most interesting characters that there is, mainly because, A, he's not a human, but at the same time, uh, as you've already mentioned about the trajectory of this trilogy, you know, we've seen him as a child, you know, going through the rafters in the in the uh, in the attic of a house and playing with his dad and playing with his grandpa and wearing clothes and going to the park and and being cute and that whole thing. Yeah. I, well, he is. No, he and is. That, and that's just. <laughs> yeah. And you know, you start there and you end where he is fighting this war and being this pretty much. Um, larger-than-life figure in the ape community where pretty much um, any of the other apes would be willing to do anything for him. And that's because he's... And that's another interesting dynamic of this film is, is, is does that allegiance fully lie just from the fact that he was the one who brought this to them and released them originally, the group from... Uh, from the captivity they were held in in uh, in Stryker's lab. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say that, but that's really what it it boils down to. With uh, what's his name's character in Rise? Sorry. Um. Damn it. Which character? I'm I'm referring to him from like X2, but it's oh, I, the, I don't know what his name is. Brian Cox. Brian though. Cox's oh, yeah. character, which is yeah. the shocking similarity between his character yeah. and his character in X2. Just waiting for him to just add metal <laughs> to his claws. But <laughs> no, I mean, you have that dynamic as well. Is is these characters follow him almost like a Christ-like figure? I think what makes Caesar one of my favorite franchise characters of all time mm-hmm. uh, is he reminds me of Katniss Everdeen, who I think, like Katniss, is more of a chosen leader thing um, based on actions that certainly to outsiders seem like heroic, courageous, larger than life, but are more, whether he's willing to admit, more out of self-preservation than it like when it originated um because what i think is fascinating about this final movie is that i would say like a, a large half of this movie he's at odds with his own clan so to speak not like literally as far as like battling with them but he his need for revenge is more important than <laughs> leading his uh, apes uh, you know to a uh, uh, safety and freedom and and that's who he's always been because he's always been loyal to his family but that's what was taken from him um sorry i just had the vin diesel yeah, family thing family. come across so that's your fault it is um <laughs> but and i think that's also why another reason why the absence of like the james franco or just the mention of that first because i do think thematically this movie is comes full circle with that because you have uh in the first movie with him being brought up by a family um I, it's only fitting that he would lose his only ties to what's right and wrong when his family is taken away from him. Um, not to mention the full circle of the apes being, uh, being put back into captivity. Uh, you know, just there's so many of like how this is a cycle you cannot escape if you are going to remain loyal to the humans. And that's the ultimate lesson learned, I think, by Caesar, uh, mm-hmm. which is that it's not wrong if... <laughs> The, you know they're gonna be pieces of shit, and um, and not think of you as an equal species anymore. So two things. Let's talk first before we get to the ending of this film. Yeah. 
Let's talk first about Bad Abe. Bad Abe. Steve ah. Zahn's character, who had a couple cute little things, I thought, including the thumbs up, which I thought was awesome. Uh, but for the most part, I don't really care for Steve Zahn. And uh, here I was like, oh, look, comic relief. Okay. Which, in a film that was, for the most part, pretty depressing throughout. Yeah, it's a pretty um, dour film. Yeah. It, um, I guess it, it kind of fits. <laughs> but it was... Uh, and. As someone who hasn't seen the original, you told me when we walked out of this that this was definitely a bit of a throwback to the characters yeah. in the original film. I would say that it's not so much that anybody in the original film is like a bad ape type character, but everybody in the original film is slightly closer to bad ape than anybody in these films because they have that Arab camp uh, with these absurd sci-fi ideas. Um, I was a fan of Bad Ape. Uh, I actually really like Steve Zahn. Like, not so much that, like, obviously the the projects he chooses or not. I'm not trying to, like, go to bat for Daddy Daycare and his supporting role in that. Um, but, like, if you watch him in something like uh, David Simon's Treme on HBO, like, he's actually a good actor when he's... And I think here he was exactly what he was casted for, which was just kind of adorable. When he... I'm sorry, but, like, that's one of my favorite moments yeah. of the entire movie when he just has his head popped up in the um, the sewer or whatever, mm -hmm. and he's just looking around like, that was just so cute. And here's what I'll say of why the comic relief worked for me, which is that it is a pretty dour film without mm -hmm. it. And the fact that it never actually interrupts something depressing to punctuate a you know a joke, and it totally only exists in Bad Ape's radius, you know, um, yeah, it didn't mind it at all, and yeah. was pretty charmed by it, yeah. uh, especially that ski vest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were a fan of the. Uh, I am. Yeah, I am a. I'm a Bad Ape ski vest fan. <laughs> um, one thing I liked about Bad Ape, though. Um, and this is where I thought some of the visuals were fantastic in this movie. Um, so there's a moment in which uh, Bad Ape, before we know that it's Bad Ape, uh, is like robbing them, I think. Mm -hmm. um, their whore or whatever takes their gun or something. I don't know. Yeah. I forget what it is. Steal but things yeah, from them. But we can't see who it is. We think it's probably a human because mm -hmm. he's wearing that human coat. Which he thinks that they're human. Yes. Ah. So what I love, though, about that visual motif is that we as the audience think that because I think there's actually some kind of kind of brilliant subliminal racial coding there. Like, we assume that there's <laughs> a default state based on whatever visual uh, uh, schemas that our brain processes as to be some kind of pure default <laughs> race, despite the fact that anybody can wear a coat. This is a, you know, a franchise where monkeys can talk, and somehow <laughs> we just assume that if, if somebody's wearing a coat, it better be or must be a human. Well, and the apes won't wear they they actually true. refuse to. That is true. Wear. Not bad ape though. <laughs> that guy pulls off that coat, man. Let me tell you. <laughs> um, so what I love though is if you take that moment and you contrast it with the fact that he gives um, Nova the coat later on in the movie, I, visually Nova looks like an ape. the The fur lining of that coat around her head mm -hmm. makes her look. And so I just thought that was a. I, whether it was unintentional or intentional, I feel like it has to be at least somewhat intentional. I thought that was a pretty brilliant uh, 
almost like melding of the the visual, especially because she's a child too, so she's not actually grown up into what it means to be a human, and it kind of shows that like you know. It's not how you're born; it's how you're raised. Like, yeah. You know, you're taught things like racism and such. Um, you know, it's kind of like that hokey story that a lot of people like to talk about, where like there was, what is it like? There's like there were two bank robbers, and like the child who witnessed it was the only person who couldn't tell that it was a black person or something like that. Whatever. It's one of those stupid story, like white person saves. <laughs> race of the or whatever but there's something similar happening in this blockbuster where i think like the costume design and that kind of thing is subliminally kind of sending this message that um they're just like obviously the script itself is trying to do that there's far less differences between the two species if we would actually acknowledge the similarities and embrace whatever little difference that there actually is. Um, so mm-hmm. I just like that visual motif. Every time like, toward the end that she was wearing that coat, I just like she kind of looks like an ape, like a little chimpanzee. No. So anyway. So regarding uh, as we move on in the, in the film and obviously yeah. Nova's character is limited in her because she cannot speak, which we get uh, told that it's because that there's a weird alteration in this virus, which was one of the parts of the film that I actually thought was a better part of a weak point. I think the way they got to that was not great for sure, although it kind of tickled me that it's maybe it's a deliberate, maybe it's not, but it accidentally calls back to the original film when Charles uh, Hester in Charlton Heston? Charlton Heston, mm-hmm. yes. Um, first lands on the planet and gets taken to them. His throat gets damaged. Mm-hmm. So I th- find it kind of funny that in the original film, to really drive home the point that humans are the ape characters in that planet and apes are the human characters, he can't speak for most of it. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like the idea that the humans were literally devolving into a Charlton Heston-like state that he arrived on that planet. So uh, I, certainly it's a little ham-fisted as to how they arrived to it. Um, but the first movie sets up that, not weird shit, but that people literally do degenerate uh, yep. from this virus. So and, uh, even if it's a far stretch like yeah. from it, like it's two movies past, I, I wouldn't say that there wasn't any, uh, there could have just been a slightly better connective tissue. Uh, and I think that's where, where ultimately it, it fails for me because I felt like uh, it really was used to have a cheap ending, in my opinion, with Woody Harrelson's character of the Colonel because I felt like there was a lack of a climactic final scene uh, in lieu of this scene where he is turning into more of an ape and he doesn't want to live anymore, which um, I guess is is fine for trying to bring his character full circle more because obviously we have the whole story about him murdering his own son and hating the apes and wanting to rid the earth of them and being an outcast among humans now with his legion of crazy commandos and he he's totally of, the guy who like stands in line at the bank and be like god you know white people have it the worst <laughs> no his character really actually reminded me a lot of ed harris's character from the film the rock uh which oh. where he's on this crazy mission that he's completely justified and if you listen to him a little too much, it's like, ah, 
I kind of see where he's coming from. But then you step back, and you're like, wait a minute, he's a Nazi. <laughs> oh. No, it's well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's he's so charming. He's convincing. He's charming at points to the people who follow him. Um, he's a cult leader, pretty yep. much. Um, but and what's interesting, really yeah. quick, is that yeah. the movie does go out of its way to say that this is. As much as he's got a large following, this is actually not the way of the entire world. No. Because that's kind of where the ending goes as far as the 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 actual U.S. military is coming to fight that. Mm-hmm. Um, which is also just another parallel between humans and apes, which is that they have differences as to uh, yeah. how to swear allegiance and such. But that, that finale between Caesar and even though that final scene between them where he's holding the gun but can't pull the trigger and you have kind of the, did he kind of make it that much worse for him by not just killing him and, and kind of, because that's what Let he wanted. Him, yeah. yeah. Um, but at the same time, I felt like that was pretty weak. I felt like that whole scene uh, was really set up from the whole storytelling with humans, some humans getting the this version of the virus and losing their ability to speak and for some reason at the beginning bleeding out of their nose, which was kind of odd. Um, but the it just felt like a cheap cop-out to me at the end of avoiding a, a, a conflict between the protagonist and the antagonist. So I didn't care for it. Yeah, I I was a fan. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll say this. One reason why it worked for me was that if I removed that scene from the movie as a whole, and I'm just looking at it, uh, whatever, uh, or I guess I should say specifically, if I removed it from the backstory of the, the drug making people mute, I almost can still see that being their showdown for me personally because it's less about, the for me, like the drug making him mute and more just, I think, him, not on death's door, but kind of knowing that, like, he lost, so to speak. I Withering mean, at the, in the, in, you know, at the bottom of the, looking for the suicide pill and yes, that kind of thing. Yeah. That, and so because it was more of just like a pathetic uh, angle of him, and that's yeah. what he was from the start, obviously just not putting up that front, mm-hmm. uh, especially because you know the the thing he keeps telling Caesar over and over is that he's so emotional. Um, so I like that that actually came back to where Caesar literally doesn't act on emotion, and that's what <laughs> makes him, uh, I don't know, like, go to visit his worst fate so to speak yeah um so i don't know there was something just so pathetic about it that i was glad that he wasn't given a villain's death and not like a caesar was able to like you know shoot him from afar before he could do damage it's not even necessarily about shooting him or 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 having a big battle showdown it just felt i'm not saying it was perfect but it definitely worked okay um one moment did you? No, go right ahead. I was going to say one moment that, and this is how I know that I love this movie, uh, is that this was the first time in this entire year of cinema that I gasped at something out loud where I was not expecting that. And not because whatever what I'll say is like so crazy, but just because I just didn't realize that I was so into what was happening. But the moment when Caesar is out, I think he just killed Woody Harrelson, and he's outside the whatever, 
and he slips in the snow when he's going to throw the grenade mm-hmm. at the fuel tank. For whatever reason, but when it's either like falls in the snow, which we then find out like one, two frames later is because he was shot by one of the whatever. It was just like that because I was so wrapped up in the climax that I wasn't expecting something to go wrong because that's how far removed I was from like analyzing the movie itself. Um, but I thought that was just a, a pretty well choreographed uh, scene from that whole yeah. point. And we have the, you know, the, the, uh, the previously um, sort of tipped off turn of the King Kong like character whose allegiance lies with the humans and he hates apes and whatever, but then. Donkey. Yeah, pretty much it's sold that he's going to turn on them, and of course he does, and that was fine. What I liked about that moment, though, is like you know it's coming from the very first moment you see him, Mm -hmm. but in the moment, I kind of liked how it was, I don't know, just, and this is where the motion capture is just so freaking good, because I don't know who was doing him, whatever, but between the CGI and the motion capture... I liked how that whole moment came out of just overwhelmingness. Like, it wasn't like, it was like, oh, I see the error of my ways. But, like, it was just kind of like, holy shit, maybe everybody's going to die if I don't do something. And then he just chose where, obviously. Like, it, it just, I don't know, it was just, it was one of the more powerful moments in the whole movie. Well, and, and uh, immediately after that action takes place, they cut to Donkey's character just standing there and you see the human next to him he finds out what's going on and slow-mo pulls his gun out and yeah. puts a bullet in his head which is something Donkey he probably falls knew out. would come right but it just it's just of him just standing there and it just proceeding then um is or happening then is just um was just quite the image yeah. and then we have the the final ending of of this which it's an interesting finale to this film because it's a bizarre climax that continues on a couple beats past when it seems like it should end and it ends fantastically as the further as it goes on because we get the enormous explosion which looks fantastic. Uh, we have Caesar who escaped this explosion still alive and then we have the whole army which is on foot arrived uh, pointing the guns at there and celebrating but then... They're not really saints because they're about ready to to kill him. But then the magical avalanche shows up to destroy all the humans and the apes can survive, which is perfect because they can climb up the trees as Caesar climbed up trees in the first film. And we saw, um, you know, the enjoyment of them and the use of them climbing trees, even in the opening parts of this film. Yeah. And we have that amazing scene with the little apes as they're uh, escaping there, climbing on the wires, including Cornelius, yeah. his son, who is also a reference to the uh, the old film, right? Yep. So, Yeah, even but, Caesar is uh, technically a reference to some of the sequels mm-hmm. of the original film, yeah. uh, in which Caesar led a revolution. No. <laughs> so it's definitely uh, but, ingrained. But that film, uh, or that, sorry, that film, that finale... Uh, was just so good. And then we have the fantastic denouement of the, the ending of this film where uh, the characters go off and it's basically just a... a They literally, I say, arrive at the terrain of the original mm-hmm. movie, which is the more desert-like, which and is the, the pretty film, cool to see. 
just straight up just ends with Caesar's death and that's it. Yeah. And that's, you know, it, that last 15 minutes or so uh, for me was the best ending we've had to a film yet this year. I thought it was just fantastic. Yep. So. I was a huge fan before the day tomorrow. I was a huge fan of the, the, the let's just say the ending of the movie uh, with, with the avalanche. Um, you were saying how it's literally, you know, um, shown earlier in the franchise that these apes climb the trees and such and Caesar has done that and what I love too though is that, that that's the final visual motif that we're treated to because I, I love the idea that the apes are able to survive because they're able to reach a higher place than the humans and yep. like you know there's nothing more succinct than that um, and the denouement uh, with him and Maurice talking, which I was actually very glad that Maurice was basically in the final moment because as much as Caesar is the protagonist, and Maurice has probably been my favorite character uh, in in this particular franchise. Well, Maurice is such a such a um, bring back to reality character yeah. for Caesar because they have their discussions and Maurice is basically the one who's like, well, actually this is what's really happening. Yeah. No. And Maurice is like the reason why Caesar doesn't ever turn into Copa. Cause he, Caesar has good qualities, which makes him receptive to feedback and whatnot. But it, without Maurice, and of course that's why Maurice uh, in the beginning of this film goes with him, even though Maurice is not like a fighter or anything like that, because uh, Maurice knows that Caesar needs uh, him in his life. Um, so yeah, their final conversation where, you know, he explains that, uh, his son will know who his father was. It's just very, very good. Cause then that ties in to mm -hmm. the very Vin Diesel, uh, aspect of what's kind of been in the through line of this entire franchise, which is that, you know, family ties are probably more stronger than any race ties or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, so Yeah. Well, going into final thoughts, um, I I thought this was a really, really strong film. Um, you know, this is a series that I previously had no interest in, and uh, I've been hearing for years uh, how much uh, Toussaint actually liked Dawn of Planet of the Apes, and I know you liked it as well. Uh, so I wanted to see that before, and I decided to watch Rise beforehand at your... I was going to say, because I was like, I, I didn't want to say, but I was like, because I didn't want to oversell it, but mm. I was basically about two clicks on my phone away from saying, no, you will love Rise of the Planet yeah. of the Apes. And I, I do. It's my favorite of, of the series, I think, and even though it involves James Franco giving a really strong performance, uh, which isn't always the norm, uh, but at the same time, uh, I felt like the connection between Caesar and the human world would not have made sense without that first film for me and just in general. Um, and actually Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which I still thought was quite good, uh, I felt like was definitely the lowest of the three films in my opinion. But this one uh, was, was quite good and uh, a film that has a lot of things going for it. It looks absolutely fantastic. If this doesn't win best visual effects at the Academy Awards this year, then... That shit would be bananas. <laughs> oh, man. I know. I mean, it, the the biggest issue for me is not just how good the CGI looks, it's how good the other special effects were as well that um, make this an absolute slam dunk to be the best visual film of the year. And some of those explosions 
I thought looked cooler than the one that they spent all of Spectre's budget on. <laughs> yep. I mean, well, just because you blew your whole wad on yeah. the scene, so and you literally have your characters stand to watch it yeah. and go, "Whoa, did you see that? It looks cool." It's I'm not saying it's, it doesn't. It's but... nine seconds, yeah. and then anyway. the rest of the film. It's I uh, that film's grown on me over the last. I'm couple not even years. saying I hate that film, but yeah. just that moment is so great because they're so proud of that explosion and mm-hmm. the film production that to have your two characters stare, stare at, at it, it yep. it's just great. Anyway, now I you know what. Uh, there's some about uh, him going through and seeing the printed out uh, black and white photos of the previous film's yep. villains. I don't... Couldn't even afford a color printer. <laughs> what kind of a mastermind villain is that? <laughs> so, War for Planet of the Apes, uh, I thought was really good. And it's teetering on uh, three and a half or four for me. And I'm going to stick with three and a half just because there are a couple things that I don't like. But this could easily get raised on a second viewing. Um and uh, we've said it quite a bit, but boy, this is a film that I would suggest trying to see in the theater at some point, because I think the the look of the visuals and specifically the sound design of this film uh, warrant a really nice theater experience. So three and a half out of five for me for War for Planet of the Apes. Yeah, uh, as I've said earlier, I'm a huge fan of this franchise and of this film in particular. I've loved all three films uh, to varying degrees, but I genuinely think they're strong across the board. But I was pretty much blown away by the fact that three movies in that a blockbuster franchise actually ended its trilogy um, and did it with, I would just say, such conviction because... There are, I mean, I think for me, the the reason why this is the peak of the trilogy is from the visuals of, like, the assault on the caves, from the soldiers coming through with the green lasers and the waterfall, and even just of the sporadic shooting as people are getting beat up, like, that was gorgeous, to the um, resolution of the battles that our characters have been fighting uh, dramatically, not necessarily militarily, throughout the whole franchise, this was like the ending to Caesar's grapple with uh, allegiance and um, love, and and it's what happens, and, and the way that they're able to explore his character at his lowest point, I think, um, and yet still find a very humane not uh, ending without it being overly uh, sweet and not like trying to cop out. I mean, Caesar himself has lost everything. <laughs> but then that's also kind of what makes his death kind of poetic. And even though he's got a son um, left, <laughs> he, you know, is kind of, he's done all that he can do. And I don't think he probably, I, I think what made him such a viable part of his ape society was his leader position. But mm-hmm. now that they're not in a place where the leader is as important to their survival um, and more probably just a figurehead, um, you know, it, it's almost like he doesn't really have a play. And so I think he almost like lets himself die in that scene. Uh, uh, obviously he was hurt. I mean, he was going, but like, it's not like a uh, quick, get a monkey medic. <laughs> um, so I, I just, I'm good just dying here. Yeah. So you can just, yeah. And, and even Maurice is just kind of like, yeah, yeah. Close your eyes, buddy. <laughs> um, so, but no, I, I just thought it was just a fantastic capper to Andy Circus's performances across the board. Um, 
all these Abe's characters are fascinating to me by the end of this franchise. And I kind of like the fact that um, I, I actually like Winnie Harrelson's turn here um, because normally he's hired to be Woody. <laughs> um and here he was actually like he was not funny at all. And, yeah, um, no, he, I mean his uh, his character is probably a lot more similar to the kind of character he's playing in something like uh, that film Out of the Furnace. Yeah, um, but he's obviously better. giving a better performance here. <laughs> yeah, but and here and it's you know and I actually like that's why I'm actually it's funny because I'm blown away by this movie because of all the apes. And, like, now that I've seen the movie, I want to pay slightly more attention to the humans in this movie, mm. especially his character, because, mm. like, even if they don't get as many scenes, like, there's still, I think, some fascinating material to mine over his monologue about killing his own son just to save, <laughs> quote-unquote, yeah, like, as if that's more important or whatever. So just this whole gentrification bullshit that is weirdly born out of something that's not as um, cut and dry and selfish as, you know, some would make a villain to be. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's more of, like, it, it reminds me of... Um, Calvin Candy, you know, like this whole uh, break open the skull Big Ben here. And no, I'm not trying to uh, compare uh, African-Americans to monkeys. But I'm saying the way that both characters talk about anything that's an other to him. Yeah. And how... No, I mean, they are both completely they're one so... track minded yeah. that they're, they're so weirdly absolutely correct. Bought into no a science. That um, hasn't actually been proven by anybody. Quite the contrary, yes. actually. But. Um, so that's why I actually find him kind of fascinating. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing this again. I'm probably going to catch it one more time uh, in the theaters. Um, I'm looking forward to the uh, Blu-ray. That will look good. Box release. I I will say if I see it again in the theaters or the Blu-ray, uh, I'm definitely going to fast forward about ten seconds in or so because the worst part of this movie is the there oh. uh, are the uh, wonderful prologue titles where um, they they basically do a little recap in a few sentences of text on screen. Using the titles of the and last yes, two films. the titles are in bold in case you didn't know that they were uh, part of Rise and Dawn. Yeah, I was a little concerned, I got yeah. I have to say, when that started. But... Like, Matt, what are you doing? Um, yeah. But uh, but luckily it went a little more subtle when they went to the actual title card. <laughs> I was gonna say it yeah. actually was a was a nice cut to the actual yeah. title card, but yeah, that was that was that was a really poor start. <laughs> it was. Uh, so uh, right now I give this movie four out of five. It's basically almost a four and a half but because i know i'm gonna see it again i'll wait before i decide to raise it but i don't really see anything that can be improved in this movie yeah so yeah it's a it's a good film for sure if you out there have any thoughts on either uh war for the planet of the apes or valerian the city of a thousand planets you can always send them on to us at film tank show at gmail.com coming up on our next episode hopefully tucson will be back as we discuss the new Christopher Nolan film, which is Dunkirk. Uh, This is definitely a film that is a little bit out of the norm for him, although he's made films that have differed quite a bit throughout his his career. Um, He's been on a similar trajectory in terms of science fiction and that kind of thing. Obviously, the the Batman films as well, but uh, this seems a little different for him. Is almost like a war epic. 
And uh, we'll see exactly what it is. Uh, the early reviews have come out, and with as with most Christopher Nolan films, they have been just falling over themselves to say how great it is. So um, I'm, I'm going to hold off because I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan, and I'm assuming that I will really like it. But at the same time, um, you know, he sometimes can fall into the the Marvel fanboy universe where people see it and just go, this is the greatest thing ever, just because it has his name attached to it. So we'll see. Sure I will. Yeah, I think uh, every one of us is, is looking forward to at least seeing it and seeing what it actually is. So. And we're seeing uh, the 70 millimeter, Brent. Yeah, boy, that's, you know, th- those kind of different um, uses of, of film and... Um, theater experiences uh, are something that you know we saw a similar kind of experience where it turned into almost an event with the uh the tarantino hateful eight showing but yeah that's just something that um is on the verge of just not being a thing and yeah which is well pretty much now go see any of them that come out because it's only about like one per year if that yeah so um but uh you know if people like Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan keep striving yeah. to embrace this kind of you know, old feel, uh, then perhaps it will someday work its way back into being a little more mainstream. But One thing I liked is that I can't remember if it was Nolan or Tarantino, but one of them was just doing an interview. I feel like it was probably Nolan because of Dunkirk, and maybe that's why I read it, whatever. But one of them kind of dispelled the myth that film it costs more. And he goes, it's not because it actually, like, obviously, yes, if you're financing, let's just say, like, you yourself put the money down to make a movie, the cost itself is more film versus digital. But he goes, the only reason why studios won't gravitate towards it is because, in the end, it's them who lose. I forgot the way he explained it, but he basically said that it doesn't actually cost more if you know what you're doing as a director. It's just that the studio would rather cut money from the budget than pay that extra money which they were always making room for anyway so it's weird it's kind of like they'll always save money even if they budget for i don't know but well the way it worked out it made sense at the end of the day you may end up spending the exact same i'm guessing there's probably a much higher upfront to having to actually just physically purchase yeah film so i i don't know but But the way he described it he said it's not so much that it costs more money. It's just that they found a way to save more money for no added benefit, actually, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. So we'll talk about that coming up more on uh, our next episode. You can always find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Tank Show and on our website where you can find all of our episodes. That is FilmTankShow.com. And you can also find uh, our latest episodes on iTunes or Stitcher as well by searching for Film Tank Show. Thank you very much to Nick Cheney for no problem. Toussaint also yes way to contribute, buddy. Excellent. He's actually been here the whole time. Yeah. So (laughs) we're starting the episode. Yeah. Yeah. Want to put your headphones on? All right. Maybe you could be eating like last week. (laughs) That was something. Just just tear. Can we really quickly, before we end this episode, I forgot to mention probably the best performance in cinema I've seen all year in Valerian, uh, in which uh, the guy who is only in like two scenes, who's the who's only seen in flashbacks of the guy who is basically going to turn the commander in. Oh. 
Yeah. Because first he doesn't have a line, it's just him with the gun mm-hmm. pointed at him. But when he later reappears in another flashback and he actually has to say like four lines, oh boy, that <laughs> was a struggle for him. There's, there was some gnarly line readings where I, it was the first time in a film in a long while where I thought somebody was reading cue cards. <laughs> So I'm sorry, buddy, but um, I think you need to uh, find another profession. <laughs> yeah, that was. If you can make that much of an impression in in a ten second scene with four lines, cause just the way he's like, "Yes, Commander." It turns out that they're not inhabited. I mean, it's like, oh man, no wonder why he just shot him. <laughs> Probably didn't even hear what he said. He was just like, "Stop talking." Oh, boy. Yeah. Yep. So, anyway, just wanted to shout out to that. All right. Well, I agree. That was that was. now that you've... I think I've, we were both laughing at that. We were. Yeah. We were. It was bad. Yeah. But, you know, there were other things. So, anyways, uh, thank you very much to Nick Cheney, and thank you very much to the listener from myself, Alex Diegman, and Nick. Uh, we will catch up with you next time here on Phil Tank. <laughs>